I am Sam J. Jones, Flash Gordon. Okay. Oh, okay. excuse me. That's okay. It's been a long day. <laughs> the dome always does that to me. Okay. It's good to be seen. It really is. And you're listening to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. your people to surrender now and avoid war. Don't think you get me so easily. It is now time for us to put Earth under our rule. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess that you've been guilty of witchcraft. You expect me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Welcome to another Area 51 recording of Sci-Fi Saturday Night, the only podcast coated with a thin candy shell. Tonight, episode 426, where we look forward with great excitement to talking. That's what we do. On board for tonight's TalkCast, sitting in at the Sci-Fi Saturday Night Gaming Console and Help Desk, our own back-alley freeform fencing champion for the past three years, and prodigious prestidigitator of protons and electrons, Kriana. And finally, <clears throat> the man who thinks light sticks are magic and three-card Monty is the work of the devil, our very own booker, Captain Cam, joins us tonight. And me, I'm just a guy who likes vintage TV, bad movies, good writing. They call me the Dome. You know, it was much better in the old days when we used to use two cans and a string. Our guest tonight is somebody who I didn't know much about, and somehow through a friend of another friend, uh, we found out about this guy, and this guy's name is Gary K. Wolf. Gary, welcome to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, you see that now, but that may change. Uh, <laughs> well, well, I don't think so. I, you know, at my age, I'm happy to be anywhere. So uh, no matter what you do to me, I'm still I'll join you happy. on that one, my friend. Um, Gary is well known for something he's not really well known for. And we're going to fix that tonight, which kind of made no sense. But fine, we're going to go with it anyway. Gary wrote a book in 1981 called... Who Censored Roger Rabbit? And that was, I guess, based on a book, based based on some stories that you used to tell your daughter? Uh, no, I, don't know, I don't know where you got that. I, I have no daughter. Uh, I have no children. I, I play with all the toys. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, uh, that, was, that was based on uh, a couple of things that happened to me when uh, when I was growing up, and um, uh, I'll be happy to tell you about him if you want to. Um, I you know it was I was in the second or third grade I can't remember. I went to a very small school in uh, Illinois, a little farm town called Earlville. There were fourteen hundred people in that uh, town. My father ran the pool hall there. My mother worked in the school cafeteria, and. Um, I was in the second or third grade, I can't remember, but the, the teacher gave us a picture to color. And um, the, the, sole, the sole point of the exercise was to color the picture and stay inside the lines. 
Yeah, uh, I never I, made that one work. <laughs> I was really good at. I was there was nobody better at staying inside the lines than I was. So uh, this picture was a farmhouse, um, uh, a barn, and a cow out in the middle of a field. So I took that picture home and I, you know, I colored colored the farmhouse yellow because that's the color farmhouses were around Orwell. Uh, okay. Colored, colored the barn red, and then I'm looking at that cow and that cow all alone out there in the middle of the field. And my mother always told me that when people were all alone, that they got sad and they got lonely and they got blue. So I colored that cow blue, right? I handed the, handed the picture in the next day. Teacher took them home that night, brought them all back in the morning and passed them all back except for mine. And she said, Gary, come up here in front of the class. And I thought, oh, man, I stayed inside the lines better than anybody. So she said, Gary, just <laughs> face the class. And I faced the class, and I had this big grin on my face. And she held my picture up over my head, and she said, class, look at this stupid, stupid picture. No. Everybody, Seriously? Wow. She said, everybody knows cows are brown, cows are black, cows are white. Sometimes cows are brown, black, and white, all three. Never, never, never are cows blue. She says, Gary, don't ever do anything like this again. She called my mother. And my mother had to go to school. And the teachers told my mother, she said, I think there's something wrong with Gary. So <laughs> so, <laughs> so that night, that night, my mother and father called me in the living room. And, and they said to me, you know, my mom said, I, I had to go to school. And this was a big deal for her, right? Said, I had to go to school. She said, why did you call her that cow blue? I said, Ma, it was really, it was really you. It wasn't, it wasn't me. It was you because you told me, you know, people all alone, sad, lonely, they got blue. I figured cows all alone, sad, lonely, got blue. I colored a cow blue. So my mother and my father said, Hey, you go outside and play for a while. We got to talk about this. But, well, I went outside and, you know, like I say, my father ran the pool hall. He dropped out of school in the third grade to go to work during the depression. My mother worked in the cafeteria. She dropped out of school the eighth grade to go to work. And, and so these were not what you would call upscale urban liberals. I mean, these were hard scrabble working people. And I didn't think this was going to have a very good ending. So, you know, after about 15, 20 minutes, my folks called me back in. They said, you know, Gary, your, your father and I talked about this. And we decided that the next time you want to color a cow blue, you go ahead and color a cow blue. So that was the best piece of advice that you could ever have given a kid because it validated my creativity and kind of gave me permission to follow my dreams wherever they may lead. Uh, so a couple of weeks later, that same teacher gave us an assignment. She said, all right, I want you to write about what you did on your summer vacation. So I wrote this, this little, little story, a one-page story, which I still have, about how I went out of my backyard on my summer vacation and I built a rocket ship out of tin cans and flew to the moon. And she just passed it back <laughs> without saying a word. All right. So that was kind of the start of it. But what really eventually resulted in Roger Rabbit was another piece of advice that I got from my mother, who was a very, very wise, wise woman with a lot of common sense, a lot of folk wisdom, a lot of common sense. And my mother told me, she said, you know, if you want to get out of this town and you don't want to wind up running your father's pool hall, the one thing you can do to make that happen, the one thing you can do is to read, 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 and that will get you out of this town. So, you know, I, I said, kid, 
what did I read? Well, I read comic books. Yeah, I read comic books. I would go down to the B Street Smoke Shop and I would read all the comic books I could until the owner kicked me out. And then I'd use my allowance to buy whatever I could. And uh, then I'd trade those comic books with my cousin who also had comic books. And, um, I, I, you know, I grew up reading comic books. And uh, the other thing that I read, my father um, was not a big reader, but he read what in those days were called true crime magazines. And uh, if you ever saw a movie called Road to Perdition, there's a mm-hmm. photographer in there is the kind of photographer who photographed for these true crime magazines. He would go to crime scenes and photograph dead bodies and uh, <laughs> you know all kinds of stuff. And they would be in magazines with, with stories. And my father read these. And so did I, because they were laying around the house. And, and, you know, my mother never told me, don't read comic books, they'll rot your brain. Or don't read true crime magazines. Uh, they're too horrifying and you'll wind up having a nightmare. So I read them both. So, you know, later on in life, I, I, when I became a writer, I had written three science fiction novels. Um but I wanted to write something that would combine my, my, the, the, the loves of my youth. Uh, and those loves were comic books, cartoons, newspaper, comic strips, and you know, true crime, true crime magazines. Or thankfully, I got into better stuff. I got into Dashiell Hammett and uh, you know, some, of the, some of the better crime writers, but say hard-boiled private eyes. And I wanted to... I wanted to combine the two. It's very funny because as I was reading Who Censored Roger Rabbit, which is the book that became the movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit, I was expecting this kind of uh, loose devil-may-care attitude in there. And I was pleasantly surprised that it's more Maltese Falcon than Tom and Jerry. Oh, no question. Yeah, Yeah, no question. Um, the, the Eddie Valiant character that you see in Who Censored Roger Rabbit is very different than what actually ended up in the movie and in books two and three. And I loved it. I absolutely loved the the, the edge that occurred there. And now you've explained to the entire world how that happened, which is awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I wanted Eddie Valiant to be my Sam Spade. And yeah. I think... Certainly, in the first book, he was, um, and um, yeah, the the book is considerably different from the movie. The first book is considerably different from the movie, but uh, I don't mind that because the book's a book and the movie's a movie. And I, I wrote the book to be the best possible piece of writing that I was capable of turning out, and I used a lot of conventions in the book like uh, the word balloons. The, the characters are actually mm-hmm. comic strip and cartoon and uh, newspaper strip characters and comic book characters. And they don't really talk. They speak in word balloons. So, you know, Roger will put up a word balloon and you have to read his word balloon. And if he turns around, his word balloon turns around and you either have to learn to read backwards or you have to... You know, <laughs> and if somebody is shot with a tuned gun... It produces a bang balloon, and you then use that bang balloon and compare it to other bang balloons to find out what gun it was that actually fired the fatal bullet. Uh, and it, if somebody's playing a tuned piano, 
the notes come rolling out in long in long strips and you cut those strips into eight by 10 sheets and that's where sheet music comes from. And I, you know, I, I did a lot of that stuff in the, in the book because I wanted to produce something that would make a reader use his or her imagination. Uh, you know, I wanted to tap into something deeper and I wanted people to, to shut their eyes and be able to visualize this. And I, th- I think I succeeded pretty well. But, I couldn't. I couldn't disagree with you on that, and it, it's very interesting in that it allows. It's a graphic novel without the graphics. <laughs> yeah, very good observation. I never thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. I I made it. I made it. I wrote it as a comic book without the pictures, um, and you know, of course, when you're doing the movie, uh, the movie's right out there. You know, it's on screen. It's right there to see. Um, so there, there are conventions in the book that you just cannot use in the movie. And, um, you know, of course, the story changed, but I, you know, I'm okay with that. Um, I, I think people who have read the book and people who have seen the movie um, like them both, uh, usually for different reasons. Uh some people like the book more than the movie. Some people like the movie more than the book. But I've never, never actually run into anybody that says, geez, I hated this. This is what <laughs> crap this book was. And I made it into this wonderful movie. I've never run into that. So, no, uh, I, and there's no real reason to do that because essentially they're really two different two different entities, completely different entities with us, some of the same characters. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly so right. You wrote the book in 81. I actually wrote the book in 80. Uh, I actually wrote the book in late 79. And uh, the book was published in 1981. <laughs> yeah. So here's, here's what happened. All right. I had a contract with Doubleday. Uh, I, I had never had a reject. I, I had a, three book deal with Doubleday, a uh, four book deal with Doubleday. And uh, I, I wrote my first one. They gave me, uh, you know, they okayed me for the second one. I wrote the second one and I could really write anything I wanted, anything I wanted to write, I could write and they would publish. So I wrote three science fiction novels, all pretty well received and highly acclaimed. I was a minor celebrity out in San Francisco where I was living at the time. So I, I, I was going to write my fourth novel for Doubleday and you know, like I say, I wanted to push the uh, push the envelope a little bit, uh, and I want to break some break some boundaries. And I want to write something that nobody had really ever written before, nobody had ever thought about before. So I was trying to figure out how to incorporate cartoon characters and noir fiction. Right? How do you do that? So I was sitting at home one Saturday afternoon watching Saturday morning cartoons. Um, for research, I told my wife, only the purely- bane of everyone's existence. Yeah, really. So, yeah. and I, they I was, ruined all of us, didn't they? Yeah, really? <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I was fascinated. I didn't think much of the cartoons, but I was fascinated by the commercials because you had Tony the Tiger and the Tricks Rabbit, Captain Crunch, Snap, Crackle, and Pop, who were cartoon characters talking to real kids, and nobody thought that was odd. And I, I said, geez, you know what? I heck of an idea for a book what if i've created a world where cartoon characters were real so i spent a year doing that and uh i sent it to sent it to double day i finished it sent it to double day it was clearly the best thing i'd ever written sent it to double day 
And for the first time in my writing career, like 50 short stories, uh, three novels, they rejected it. They, they sent it back. I said, we, you're sorry. You know, we know you have a contract with us, but you can keep the money. We can't publish this. So I called my editor. I said, yeah, well, I said, Sharon, why can't you publish this? It's the best thing I've ever done. And she said, oh, yeah, I agree. It's funny. It's unique. Uh, never read anything like this before, but it's so different from anything you've done and anything anybody's done that I had to send it over to the marketing department, and they're the ones who rejected it. So I said, well, okay. Then I called the marketing department. I said, Charlie, you know, why did you reject my book? He said, oh, well, you know, we all liked it, but really it, it doesn't fall into any category. There's no, there's no space for this on the bookstore shelves. It's not a regular adult novel. It's not a mystery. It's not a children's book. It's not really science fiction. It's not really fantasy. I got no category for it. I can't sell this book. And I said, all right, Charlie, what, what would you do if somebody gave you today The Wizard of Oz or Gulliver's Travels or Alice in Wonderland? What would you do with those? And he thought for a minute and said, I couldn't sell those either. So, uh, you know, I, I, <laughs> I was destroyed. classic. Yeah, I went to my agent. I said, you know, Bill, what are we going to, what are we going to do here? What am I going to do? If I can't write this and sell it, I don't want to be a writer anymore because this is what I want to do. He said, oh, well, no, don't worry about it. He said, well, we'll find a home for it. So he started sending it out to different publishers, very often different editors at the same publisher. And along the way, it got 110 rejects, 110 people rejected Roger Rabbit. Uh, and finally, it landed on the desk of a young woman named Rebecca Martin, who was a senior editor at uh, St. Martin's Press. And she had just published a major bestseller for them. And the, the head of St. Martin's Press said that she could have a vanity project. Any book she wanted to publish, she could publish it. And just at that moment, Roger Rabbit came across her desk, and so she uh, she took it up to the head of the of the uh, company and said, "Here's the book I want to publish." And he said, "Okay, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll read it tonight, and I'll get back to you in the morning." So he came back in the morning and said, "You know, Rebecca, I read this book, and I said you could publish anything you wanted, but you can't publish this because I can't sell it. There's no category for it on the bookstore shelves." And Rebecca stepped up to the plate and said, "You either publish it." Or I quit. And uh, for that, I owe her my, my reputation, my life, uh, everything I've become in life. Uh, they published it in very, very small quantities. I think 5,000 copies. And if I had my writing life to live over again, what I would do is I would buy all 5,000 of those copies because I think they were priced at two ninety five. And if you can find one now on the internet, it's somewhere north of 350 bucks. So wow. I would have bought them all and put them in my, in my garage. But um, I sold it in 1980, and it took a year uh, in the publishing business then for a book between the time it was actually purchased and the time it came out. So it took a year. So in that year, which was prior to 1981, it, it was actually published in 1981. Uh, in, in late 1980, I get this call at home, home phone, right? And I answer, and a guy on the other end says, is this Gary K. Wolf? I said, yeah, it is. He says, oh, hey, this is Roy Disney from the Disney Company. And I, I just read your book, and I'm wondering if you'd be interested in, that, in, in letting the Walt Disney Company make it into a movie. And I said, 
Yeah, right. Well, yeah, right, Roy Disney's calling me on my home number. Yeah, right. Who is this really? He says, no, 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 it's Roy Disney. I said, I read your book. I said, you couldn't have read the book. The book hasn't been published yet. And I found out that somebody at St. Martin's Press, I never found out who, and I, I really tried because I wanted to kiss her or him full on the lips. Somebody <laughs> at St. Martin's Press sent a copy of the manuscript to Walt Disney said, hey, you know, we think you might be interested in this. And indeed they were. It worked its way through the chain up to eventually Roy Disney. And uh, he wanted to, wanted to buy it for a movie. I honestly, my heart of hearts, if you want the honest, the honest answer, I didn't think it was filmable. I did not think that anybody could take my book and make it into a movie because it was so conceptual uh, and so reliant upon the imagination of the people reading it that i didn't think it was filmable but yeah i mean at that point in time who else but disney could have well uh, you got to realize that in those days disney was not the behemoth that they have since become disney was in disney needed this they they needed this desperately they were they were in danger of becoming a second-rate movie production house they had made uh, Flubber, they had made uh, the Black Cauldron, they made the Black Hole, uh, and the Black Cauldron disappeared down the Black Hole. You know, they, they made The Nutty Professor, they made movies that were intended to be the second half of a double feature, and there were no more double features. So they really needed something to springboard them back up into the ranks of the top flight production houses. They'd been offered ET and they turned it down. They'd been offered star Wars. They turned it down. So they needed this. And, um, you, you know, to show you, to show you where they were at the time, uh, and what a different Steven Spielberg makes in the movie business. Uh, Steven Spielberg was really the one that, that got the movie made. They really couldn't have done it without him because in 1982 or 83, Roy Disney went to Warner Brothers and said, hey, we're making this movie. It's a live action animated movie. And we'd like Bugs Bunny to come on screen just 10 seconds and say, hey, what's up, Doc? And come on, right? Very short cameo. Um, and th that's it. And Warner Brothers looked at Roy Disney and said, you lost. Get lost. There's no way that, that a Warner Brothers character is ever going to appear in a Walt Disney movie. That's never going to happen. So five years later, when Steve Spielberg walks in and makes the identical request, hey, can we have Bugs Bunny um, for a cameo? What's up, Doc? And Warner Brothers says, of course. Of course of you can. Of course, Mr. Spielberg. Not a problem. <laughs> what about what about Horky Pig? You want him too? And, and what about Sylvester Stallone? Sylvester and, and Tweety Bird, and, and, and how about the Roadrunner, Wiley Coyote, and you know, somebody see him, take them all, take them all. Uh, and um, so, you know, that's the difference that a Steven Spielberg makes in Hollywood. So, you've got this book. Now, Disney wants to take it and turn it into something different, and yet kind of still the same. How are you, in, how are you involved in that process? Well, I, it was like a roller coaster. I would be involved, and then I wouldn't be involved, and then I would be involved, and then I wouldn't be involved. Depended on, on you know who who was in charge at the time and what the uh, uh, you know what the corporate philosophy was. 
uh, as an example, it, 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 to me, it, it, it was kind of clear that at the time, Disney did not have the horsepower to do this. In 1981, 1982, 1983, they didn't have the horsepower. And at one point, Disney came to me and said, look, we really are, are seemingly incapable of making this as a live action animated movie. What would you say if we made this as an all live action movie with the cartoon characters in costume like they are at Disneyland? And I think to myself, holy moly, I'm going to wind up with Fred McMurray as Eddie Valiant and, 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 and uh, <laughs> Haley Mills as dead Jessica, Dean Jones as the rabbit, and Kurt Russell as baby Herman, you know? And, and I said, doesn't that just compromise the premise just a little bit. And they, they agreed. Yeah, it did. And it went off and, you know, spun their wheels some more. It really wasn't until Steve Spielberg, until Michael Eisner, Jeff Katzenberg, Steve Spielberg, and Bob Zemeckis got involved. When they got involved, the thing took off and just never looked back. And uh, Steve Spielberg had read the book when it first came out uh, and always liked the story and liked my writing and liked the book and, valued my opinion. Uh, Bob Zemeckis had been offered it back in 1982, but he didn't think that Disney had the clout to pull it off. So he went off and, you know, did some little unknown movies like Back to the Future and Forrest Gump before Steve Spielberg got him back involved. But they valued my opinion. But, but you know what? There were times... In, in, during the Spielberg, Spielberg Zemeckis years, when I would find myself in a room with 35 of the most creative people that I have ever seen in my life, blow away creative people, and they're all throwing out ideas on how to make my book funnier and better. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, if I had had you guys at my kitchen table back in 1978, when I was writing this thing at four in the morning, I could have won the Pulitzer Prize, you know. So, <laughs> so there, there really, you know, there really wasn't a whole lot I could contribute to the movie. And yeah, I knew the story was going to change, but it was, it was, it was a good story. And um, I, you know, I, I didn't mind. It, it looked to me like they were producing something that was going to be a, a classic work of. Of art, and yeah, I just I, I'm not going to stand in the way of that just because uh, you know they they took my story and and changed it around. Uh, they at least they did something that they didn't have to do. They kept the premise, cartoon characters uh, in a real world. They kept the locale, Toontown. Um, they kept the characters. They kept Roger, Jessica, Baby Herman, Eddie Valiant. Those are my characters. I created those in my book. And they could have made him, you know, Roger Raccoon. Um, um, and I don't know, Sadie, Sadie Rabbit. I don't know. But they didn't. They kept all the characters. And they even looked pretty much the way they do in, in the book. They have slightly different personalities. But the, they're still my characters. And So how did it feel? Um, when did you first see the completed movie and how did that feel for you? I saw the absolutely completed movie, um, complete with my credits at the premiere at Radio City Music Hall in 1988. And I think it was July, 
something uh, because they were still working on it up to a couple of weeks before it it premiered. And uh, I had never seen my credit on the screen. So uh, I, was, I was up in the first balcony with all the VIPs and I'm sitting up there and, you know, I'm going to, I'm, I, I've got, I've got Kathleen Turner sitting on my left and she was Jessica's voice. Of course, I've got Amy Irving, who was Steve's wife at the time. And she was Jessica's singing voice because uh, Kathleen was pregnant when she was doing the voices and whether she, she couldn't sing because she couldn't get breath control or whether she just couldn't sing. I don't know. But, you know <laughs> Steven, Steven said, Hey, you, you know, Amy, you sang in Yentl. Why don't you give it a whack? And, I said, oh, you know, nobody's going to believe that Jessica has one voice when she's singing and a totally different voice when she's speaking. He said, ah, nobody will notice. And nobody ever did. But uh, so I've got Kathleen Turner on my right. I've got, I've got Amy Irving on my left. And, you know, I'm about to watch the movie made for my book and see it all the way through for the first time and see my credit up on the big screen for the first time. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, Life just doesn't get any better than this. And then, by golly, life got better because Kathleen put her hand on my leg and leaned <laughs> and whispered in my ear, just, Gary, are you excited? And I said, Kathleen, you have no idea. <laughs> that's, that's amazing, an amazing story. So you took then, well, then, like two or three years later, or I don't know, maybe you were working on it throughout this and came up with a second book within this universe, which was kind of a little bit more aligned with the Disney universe than, than the original universe in Who Plugged Roger Rabbit, which uh, was published in 91. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, pu -pu 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 plugged. We, we standardized I'm on, sorry. on the fourth piece cutter. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, you know, when I wrote, when I wrote Who Framed Roger, when I wrote Who Censored Roger Rabbit, uh, I, I really thought that was going to be it. Uh, that was, you know, it was going to be a standalone book, and then I'd go out and do something else. But it was so successful, and uh, you know, so, so many people saw the movie and loved it. Now, I, I got to be honest with you. Um, I think at, at last tally, I, I get the royalty statement. I still get the royalty statements. I think at last tally. Um, the movie has grossed $1 billion. So let's say that uh, a half a billion people saw the movie, right? And I'm guessing maybe eight people read the book. And of those eight, uh, six of them were my mother and, and my five aunts. So to most people, the Roger Rabbit that they are familiar with and that they know is really the Roger Rabbit from the Disney movie. So I had a dilemma, you know, do I, do I write the Disney version of the book or do I stay with my version of, of Toontown and, and the Toon characters, which are harder edged and uh, not always, not always that pleasant, not always that nice and not, certainly not always that sweet. Uh, and so I kind of came up with a hybrid for, uh, for the two and um in Plugged, they still talk with word balloons, although they now have the ability to talk normally if they want to. Um, the story is still a very, very grown-up story. It's still, it's not a kid's book by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, 
um, Roger thinks that uh, Jessica is having an affair with Clark Gable, and it turns out she <laughs> probably is. So, um, you know, it's it's still a mature book, and I I still had a lot of fun writing it, um, and I, I I think it was successful. It got a lot of got a lot of good reviews. Um, Disney bought the rights for uh, for movie two, and uh, you know whether it ever will be movie two or not. Uh, I, I don't know. When you wrote that second book, was the intent for this that to be the sequel, or was it just I want to go back into that universe again and continue writing? Uh, I, I I am the I am the Lord High Almighty Grand Potentate of Toontown, and I can I can bend the rules of Toontown however I want. So uh, some things in Toontown remain consistent from book to book. Some things don't. Uh, it's kind of my option. And I did not write it to be a sequel to the movie or the first book. I wrote it because I really, really love the characters. I love the premise and I love going into Toontown. And for me, it's, it's hard, hard not writing because in order to write about Toontown, I actually have to get up every morning and go into Toontown and live there. And I have to look around, see what I see. And um, it, it's hard because every single thing in the book has to be consistent with some place where, you know, tunes and humans coexist. Like you know, on, on the surface level, the simplistic level, bars. You have human bars, you have tune bars. Well, what happens if a tune goes into a human bar? Well, you saw that in the movie. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. what, happens, what happens if a human goes into a tune bar? He orders a drink of tune shine and uh, drinks it. You know, what happens to him? Um, all kinds of things like that that you have to think about uh, to make them consistent. Because if they're not consistent, you lose the reader. They're going to say, oh, man, that doesn't make sense. So it's the hardest, hardest writing I do, but it's also the most fun. I, I get into my my little universe and I sit there in my little office and I, I shut my eyes and I go to Toontown and I, I, I write about what I see there. And uh, it, it's hard to come up with a mystery because the mysteries I come up with have to be a mystery that would only work in a land, in a, in a world where cartoon characters are real. Wouldn't work in, wouldn't work in, in, a, in a human world. Um, might work in an all cartoon world, but uh, it has to be a mystery that revolves around a place where cartoon characters are real. So one of the things I like to talk to writers about is their particular process in, in, in the writing process. I mean, there are some writers who I have to get up at seven o'clock. I have to make a pot of coffee. I have to sit in this chair facing this, this, this uh, particular window looking out on this, and then I can center myself. And, and there are others who go, yeah, I'll go down to the coffee shop with my laptop. If there's <laughs> nobody there to talk to, then I'll, I'll sit and I'll write for half an hour. Yeah, or, or Edgar Rice Burroughs, who used to go to bed at night and dream Tarzan adventures and wake up in the morning and write them down. And that's what yeah. you get. No, I, my writing process is, is it, it's kind of the same, but it's a little different. I used to, when I was, when I was actually working for a living, um, I, I would get up at uh, generally at 3.30 in the morning 
and I would start writing at four and I would write from four to seven. Uh, and then I'd go do my regular job and then come home, go to bed and do it all again the next day. Uh, when I sold the rights to the movie to Disney and I had enough money that I didn't have to you know, go to a regular job. Uh, actually my writing, my writing process didn't change that much. I would still get up and sleep in until five and I, I get up at five. I generally start writing at seven and write until noon. Uh, I was a, a very, very serious runner, marathon runner. I've done 38 marathons and, uh, then I would go for go for a run, generally 12 to 15 miles. Uh, then I'd hit the gym, come home, uh, generally either read a book or watch a movie, go to bed and, and write, do the whole thing again the next day. So I, I generally write for about three to four hours a day. And that's because if I write any more, it's, for me, it's a physical process. Writing is a physical as well as a mental process. And I if I write any longer than that, I start to get headaches. But uh, a couple of things happened. I started meditating and I also uh, started doing yoga. And I found that uh, yoga and meditation helped me to uh, kind of structure my, my thoughts. And I, it, since I started doing that, every really good idea I've gotten for a novel, every really good idea I've gotten for a premise within a novel, has come to me when I'm either running, uh, meditating, or doing yoga. Uh, and my, my process has now changed. I have, I'm, a, I'm a man of the new century. Um, I went to Russia, and um, while we were in Russia, uh, I had to had a deadline. I had to finish the third Roger Rabbit novel, which is Who Whacked Roger Rabbit. And, of course, I'm in Russia, right? What am I going to do? I don't have a laptop because I don't like the keyboard, but I did have an iPad. So I wrote the whole novel on my iPad, and I found that I really, really liked it. Um, and since then, I have written almost exclusively on the iPad. And, uh, well, there you I'm, go. Yeah, as, since, uh, since I'm writing on the iPad, I'm, I'm completely mobile. So I've been going over to um, coffee shops, right? See, and, here's what I'm saying. <laughs> and, if, and if there's nobody interesting to talk to, well, uh, yeah, I'll write my novel. And uh, I've got a coffee shop in Boston. Uh, it's right on uh, right on Boylston Street. And there, there are easy chairs in the window. And I can sit there in the window, watch the people go by and write my, write my book on my iPad. And I'm a happy guy. There you go. You know, you know, Gary, uh, you know, we worked really hard to make this interview happen. Uh, we went around and around for a bunch of weeks and all this stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and then we had all kinds of technical issues walking into it tonight. And, but I'm really glad we got this one to work, man. I really yeah, me am. Too. Yeah, me too. You know, I, I understand that you actually went out and read my books. I mean, I, I, I absolutely freaking did. Yeah. I, I'm not the only one. I, I can't tell you how few people have actually done that. <laughs> like I say, my, my mother and my four aunts. And, and well, you. you you can add two more because myself and Cam the Booker have read all three of them. And I got to tell you, they are more fun than humans should be allowed to have. Well, and, 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 yeah. and the, uh, the Who Whacked Roger Rabbit, it's a good story, too, because uh, I had done I had done Censored and Plugged and uh, – 
I did it. I went back to writing science fiction after that, and I was. I was say, there's a huge break in time there, from yeah. 91 to 2013. Yeah, and what happened was I went back to writing science fiction uh, because I, like I say, Roger Rabbit books are so hard for me to write. It is, it is, it is excruciatingly hard for me to write. And so I, I took a break, and the break turned out to be longer. And I wrote a bunch of science fiction books, and I wrote a bunch of movie scripts and stuff like that. And uh, I was working with a publisher, and I had a had a book uh, that was coming out, and um, she wanted me to do a blog. And I said, "Oh, okay, you know, I'll do a blog." And I, I said, "What do I put in it?" She said, "I'll just put something interesting in it every day to keep people from coming back." So I looked through my files and I said, well, I've got this Roger Rabbit novel I started. <laughs> you know, can I can I put that in the blog? You know, maybe a chapter a day. And she says, you've got a Roger Rabbit novel? I said, yes, pretty much done. I, I, you know, I just never went back to it. And she says, you've got a Roger Rabbit novel that's, that's done and you haven't published it. And I said, yeah. She says, well, we'll publish that instead of publishing this other piece of crap that, that you just got through doing. But um, <laughs> The, the interesting thing about it, whacked. Um, after I did censored, um, it, you know, in the time it took between I, the time I sold it, which was 1979, 1980, early 1980, and 1981, um, I did think that maybe I would want to do another one. So, whacked was actually written between censored and plugged. Uh, I've gone back and <clears throat> and changed it, and I think you know made it more my current style. But it is actually uh, it families better between censored and plugged than it does censored, plugged, whacked. So uh, I, th I think tonality is, is more censored than plugged. There's certainly less uh, less of the movie version and more of the book version. So, so the reality is now, is you just finished another science fiction novel, and you're going to come back and we're going to talk about that some other time, but it's been almost eight years mm -hmm. since you've worked in the tune in Toontown. Uh, well, it's yeah, yes and no. Uh, there's some things I got going on I I can't talk about, but uh, let's just say that I'm working on a live action animated movie right now. That is, you know, all you all you Toontown fans are really going to love. Um, and, and Gary, Gary, when when we get to the point where you can talk about it, absolutely. the first place we'd like you to come and talk about it is you know, right here. Absolutely, I, I got to be honest with you. You guys are the only interviews I've ever had that, that have read my books. I mean, most people. <laughs> now, what was it you wrote again? Uh, yeah. So you know, yeah. you know, seriously, you're not the only author who said that. <laughs> uh, because you know I, I we had a guy who I really love called C.T. Phipps was on about two and a half years ago and I'm just asking him some some real straightforward questions and, and halfway through the interview he goes wow you really have read this book haven't you and I went yeah <laughs> I know the point <laughs> well I've got uh, I've got a live action animated movie that that is just a blow away I mean it is it is it is just a blow away. Uh, I'm working on a um, 12 episode, uh, 22 episode, I'm sorry, 22 episode adaptation 
of uh, my space vulture, my space vulture novel, the one I wrote mm-hmm. with my my childhood buddy uh, Johnny Myers, who is uh, the the Archbishop of Newark, New Jersey, uh, and you know we're doing a we're doing a TV series uh, on that. <laughs> And um, I've also got a uh, uh, a TV series, all animated, and that will be that'll be animated. Uh, and I've got another animated TV series that uh, is set at a Toontown jazz club called Uncle Poots. Uh, and Uncle Uncle Poot is a pig, and he's called Uncle Poots because when pigs get together and and say hello, they always bump their butts and go poot poot. So, um, you know, I. I'm I'm still going into Toontown a whole lot more a whole lot more than maybe is healthy, but uh, it's a lot of fun for me. I I, I just I just enjoy it. And the, the thing that's amazing to me, I mean, I've I've been writing about Toontown now since what, 1978. It's a long time, and I still go into Toontown, and I still see things that I never saw before. And I'm able to write about things that I, I never thought about. And you write about situations and um, characters that that are just so mind-blowing to me um, that, that I'm, I'm amazed. I, the, the, the thing I'm, I'm most amazed about when I, when I write a book, when I, when I write any book, uh, uh, somebody, somebody was said, uh, Kurt Vonnegut or somebody said it, you know, writing isn't writing; it's rewriting, and I I, I prove the prove the point. I I rewrote the original Roger Rabbit novel. I rewrote every page at least a hundred times. Yeah, you keep making it better, making it better, making it better, and at the end, I can go back and I can read that book now, and I can say, I didn't write this. This is too good. I, you know, I am not capable of this kind of writing. This is way too good. Um, and you know it's it hasn't changed. I still go back and I, you know, I, I do something in the first draft and it's crap. Uh, but yeah, maybe maybe one percent of it's pretty good. So you keep the one percent and you know you do another draft and that's crap. But maybe it's five percent is good. And eventually I get to a place where it's so good that I really do not believe that I was capable of writing it. If You've only seen the movie. Mm-hmm. Enjoy the movie. But take <laughs> a minute. Hop on down to Amazon. And I'm going to provide links in, in, the, in the show text for you to find the three books that really define Toontown. Who censored Roger Rabbit? Who plugged Roger Rabbit? Oh, there you go. And who whacked Roger Rabbit? Take them. Read them. Enjoy them. I can't thank you enough for a great God. It's been almost an hour we've been at this, Gary. Well, hey, one more, <laughs> one more quick trick. Two more, two more things. They can also go to my website www.garywolf.com, where you will find out everything you want to know about the guy that is me, and I am a fascinating individual. Uh, but let me let me tell you one quick story <laughs> about gags in the margins. Okay, you know gags in the margins. Uh, Film goes through a projector at uh, uh, 25 frames per second, I think. 24. 24 frames per second. There you go. Uh, an animator in a crowd. So uh, 
you have to do 24 cells or drawings to match up with the live action in order to be seamless, right? Animators discovered way early on that they could screw around with six of those 24 frames and the human eye couldn't tell. So uh, when, you watch, when you're watching the movie, you the freeze frame. Because when uh, baby Herman goes underneath that woman's skirt at the beginning, uh, if you freeze frame that, you'll see for six frames, uh, as he comes down, he has his middle finger extended and it's slightly damp. He has this <laughs> lecherous look on his face. And uh, you will also find that, uh, although this, this was later removed, probably not there anymore, but uh, when Betty Boop says, I still got it, Eni Eddie, boop, boop, doop. Yeah, that, that was removed very the, early the on. Max Fleischer cartoon where she did that, the front of her dress fell down and came yep. back again and the animators continue the tradition. Well, so I, I, I tell you that for only one reason, uh, Steve Spielberg, when he was going around getting all the characters uh, for the movie, he wanted to make sure that all the key players got the characters in the movie that were their favorites. So Bob Hoskins was Heckle and Jekyll, uh, Zemeckis was the Roadrunner, Wiley Coyote, um, so he came to me, he said, Gary, you know, what's your favorite character? I want to make sure you get your favorite character in there. And I said, ah, Steve, you know, I got Roger, I got Jessica, I got baby Herman. I think I'm covered. He says, okay, well, you know, I'll think of something for you. So if you watch the movie, when, when Bob Hoskins in Eddie Valiant is going through the tunnel into Toontown and the curtains part, and if you look there in one single cell, you will see, you will see a yellow farmhouse, a red barn, and a blue cow all alone up the middle of a field. Oh my lord! <laughs> that is that is the best way to end this interview. We have been talking for the past hour with the man who created Toontown, Gary K. Wolf. Gary, you're welcome back here anytime. Thank you for joining it, us tonight. It was a pleasure. Thanks. One of the best interviews I've ever had. Thanks, guys. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of GraniteCon, Keen Comic Con, Plastic City Comic Con, BooksandBooze.com, and ComicArtHouse.com. Be sure to visit Comic Art House for some of the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists. If you're looking for a really, really good gift book for the rapidly approaching St. Swithin's Day, consider a look at Sci-Fi Saturday Night's first anthology, my Peculiar Family, now on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. My Peculiar Family, the audiobook, is now available on Audible. I'm not really sure where else you could possibly look for it. Our intro production is provided by Rob Watts. His amazing stuff can be found on robwattsonline.com. Check out the Watts sauce. Trust me on this one. Our outro music is provided by Lawrence Made Me Cry. Their grooves are at lawrencemademecry.com. Big hello to Jojo and Celine. Many thanks to the cast who helped make this possible tonight from the Peabody Time Tunnel. Kriana and Zombrarian, thank you both very, very much for all you do. This is Dome saying Terry and Jeannie, shared pain is lessened, shared joy increased. Thus do we all refute entropy. We'll talk soon, Stacy. Stay strong, Liz. Good night, everyone, unless it's daytime. <laughs>